0: <laughs> Welcome to TNT Art Forum, a podcast of the new theater produced in Richmond, Virginia.
1: Hey, this is Nathaniel Shaw for the next episode of TNT Art Forum. Um, I'm heartbroken today that we're not joined by my co-executive, Vida Williams, but I'm also thrilled at the same time to get to hang out for a little while with one of our producers, Hannah Sikora. Hannah, Hannah, how are you?
2: I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Well,
1: So, so great to get you involved in this more directly. I'm really excited about today's conversation.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited for what we got on tap. We've had incredible conversations in our past three episodes so listeners if you haven't listened to our previous three episodes make sure you go check them out we had the first incredible episode with nathaniel take it away oh we
1: had phil crosby from richmond triangle players just a wonderful executive in this community uh he was joined by um, Katrina Carroll Lewis, who's just an incomparable actress, sought after for just about everything today, and the Artistic Director of Museum Theater at Colonial Williamsburg as well, which was a great conversation to kind of get um, a look at what's going on in Richmond uh, as we come out of this pandemic. And then follow that up with a wonderful conversation with Warren Adams, Mm -hmm. who is the co-founder of the Black Theater Coalition, and man, that guy was like a walking database mm-hmm. of um, uh, specifically Black but BIPOC representation through every aspect of the American theater, which mm-hmm. is great.
2: I'm really excited for the fellowship program that they just released. They're um, doing a slow r- rollout of the incredible people that they've uh, ha- that they brought on for their fellowship program, and I think what they're doing over there is super exciting.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, in such a short period of time, eighteen months. Millions of dollars raised, fellowships in almost every aspect of the American theater that, as you said, they're rolling out over time. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. And Michael J. Bobbitt also mm-hmm. joined that conversation. And we had so much great inv- information between Michael and Warren that we had to break that into two episodes. Yeah. So um, uh, thrilled thrilled by that. And, you know, today's going to be exciting as well because Kareem Fahmi and Kari Dadsvitch, both prolific theater artists, um, and, and both with a heavy emphasis of their work in new plays, and that being a core commitment of the new theater, to be able to talk about the ecosystem of American new play development with the two of them is just a great opportunity for us to learn and, and, and sharpen our intentions, but also for our listeners as well.
2: Definitely. Um, And Kari Dodd is close to home for us because we are working on her um, amazing play called Red Bike. Um, Nathaniel, if you want to tell us what we have coming up with with that.
1: Yeah, well, we have four readings that we're presenting over February and March that, um, you know, they're meant to sort of set the tone of the artists that our audiences can expect us to engage with both in production, but also in new play development as we move forward. And these four readings uh, are scattered around the community, more information coming very, very soon. But we're kicking off with Angelica Cherie's stunning play, Berta Berta. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to see the premiere of this at Contemporary American Theater Festival. That's a theater company we hope to partner with in the near future. We'll follow that up, as you said, with Kari Dutz-Fitch's beautiful, elegant red bike, which Mm -hmm. captures the experience of being an 11-year-old out in the world on your first red bike. It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: We will follow that up in March with Rihanna Yazzie's Addie, which is a bit of a response to the Man Ray exhibit because um, Addie Fidelin was a muse of Man Ray. Mm -hmm. And it looks at Rihanna's experience as a Navajo artist kind of um, finding this lost woman in history and the relationship she shared by kind of discovering her doppelganger Mm -hmm. out there in the world. And then we'll close this series of readings, these introductory readings at the Science Museum on March 24th, looking at photograph 51, which captures the history of Rosalind Franklin in the pursuit of codifying and naming DNA Mm -hmm. and the way she was kind of written out of that history.
2: Definitely. And uh, our amazing, talented friends over at PBS, they just did a great feature on Rosalind Franklin. And we must be on the if we're on the same page as PBS. I think we're doing some good stuff. Yeah,
1: I I would say so. Yeah. Make sure to check
2: out that article on our Facebook page, the new theater on Facebook Um, And also all our other social medias, we're um, giving you sneak peeks to what we're doing with our reading series and what's coming up for the new theater, both on our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and our monthly newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter at our website, thenewtheaterrva.org.
1: Today on Art Forum, I'm thrilled that we're turning our attention to new play development as it is an absolutely core commitment of the new theater. And we are joined today by new theater advisor, Kareem Fahmi and playwright Karidad Svitch. Kareem is a director, playwright, and a screenwriter. He was named a 2020-21 TCG Rising Leader of Color. In 2019, he was a Sundance Theater Lab Fellow, as well as the Phil Killian Directing Fellow at Oregon Shakespeare. He's a current member of the Warner Media Access Writers Program, and he also created the BIPOC Director Database, which is a wonderful tool to help build awareness and connect theaters and producers to directors of color. Kari Dotsfitch is a playwright, screenwriter, songwriter, editor, translator, you name it. She is the recipient of an Obie Award for Lifetime Achievement in Playwriting, the recipient of the Ellen Stewart Career Achievement in Professional Theater from the Association of Theater and Higher Education. She's a recipient of the TAN Foundation Award, and I'm excited to say her incredible body of work includes Red Bike, which the new theater will feature in February as part of the reading series that Hannah Sakura alluded to earlier. How are both of you? Where are you in the world, and 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 what are you doing, Karidad? Let's let's start with you.
3: Hi, um, I'm Karidad. I'm currently in California, in Southern California, um, hunkered down in the land of COVID, uh, <laughs> and uh, but also simultaneously rehearsals with a show in Washington D.C., uh, oh. which opens, we hope. Fingers crossed. Right uh, on February third, at Gala Hispanic Arts Center.
1: Yeah, we've we've seen a lot, just a a, a new wave of postponements and cancellations with Omicron virus, and um, you know, just just rooting for everybody to kind of find a way to push on through. Yeah, Kareem, where are you joining us from today?
0: Um, I'm at home in New York City, in Hamilton Heights, in Manhattan. Um, hopefully, we are crusting over our Omicron wave, mm-hmm. is the hope. But yeah, things here have been pretty quiet. <laughs> I just uh, just literally, like an hour ago, wrapped up a Zoom workshop that was supposed to be an in-person workshop at Playwrights Center in Minneapolis. Um, mm-hmm. But it's great. You know, Zoom is, I'm sure we'll talk about in this podcast, you know, Zoom is a great tool for us artists in these times and dealing with a wave of postponements as well for upcoming things. But, you know, ha- happy to be working even if it's all virtual for now.
1: Yeah. Well, it feels like both of you, um, you know, watching from a little bit of a distance via social media, um, I, I feel like both of you managed to have quite a productive chapter through through the pandemic can you can you talk about a little like how that how you, how you managed to accomplish that or what opportunities were kind of kind of made that possible kareem
0: yeah sure i'd be happy to start with that i mean I, it, is it weird to say that like you know zoom and these types of of collaborations and creative explorations that have happened in virtual spaces has been kind of like in a way, one of the greatest gifts I've had because you know, not to go back into the whole, it feels like the distant past now, but like I, I was not like I was by far not an early adopter of the like, let's just pivot everything to virtual spaces because i I was wary of it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't. I just didn't, you know, and then at, as we kind of started going like, oh, we're in this for the long haul and that was really the only option, (laughs) you know, nobody was doing anything, I was like, okay, let me, you know, let me try this, let me see what this is like, and, and I, you know, it, it was a gift because it kept my creative brain functioning, and then it was like, once I understood how to do it, I was like, okay, this is not theater, like, to me, it's not creating theater in that traditional sense, but in terms of what we're here to talk about, which is like the development of plays, it is very much a use. I found it to be a very useful tool. And I think most importantly, it, it got me in rooms with people. And even though there were virtual rooms, the ability to collaborate and to and to join forces with people all over the country was huge for me. And so as a result of the work that I was able to do virtually, you know throughout the pandemic, many more virtual things started to emerge out of that and now in fact in-person opportunities um, were birthed from collaborations that started on zoom so i'm actually now going to be working with people that i've still never met in person that i've only ever met on zoom but thank god that i met those people on zoom because now they're supporting my work so it, it has been actually great for me um
1: yeah so as both of you know um I've talked to both of you enough about it for you to know that the new theater wants to join the ranks of those in the American theater that are devoted to developing and premiering new work. Um, so, again, to speak with both of you who are, um, you know, doing such amazing work in that space is such such a benefit to us and to our audience. Um, and this is, this is probably a, a, a broad topic, and maybe I should have found a more specific conversation, but... Um, maybe Carrie I would start with you. the 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 question is: What is the American new play development ecosystem doing really, really well? Where do you see it working? Uh, and 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 um, you know, where is where are you, where are you finding success? And how is how is that ecosystem that engine working well?
3: Uh, well, in a broken system, it's hard to figure out the points that are working. I will say that the um, what is working is kind of what I call the low. There's a combination of things. So one of them is what I'm going to use high, low, which I hate using. But for just bear with me for a second, uh, which is um, the lower tier is people with a lot, smaller operating budgets, if they have one at all uh, or freelance artists, essentially sort of totally DIY. So the DIY part of our field, I think, has been On the one hand, struggling, of course, because there's been no relief and no support. But on the other hand, for those that have been able to somehow stay stay focused and kind of try to make things or even just gather spaces together. There is a kind of uh, busting down the gates kind of mentality. And I think that that's been truly exciting in terms of developing new work in terms of even just dreaming up new things to do and also thinking you know of different ways of doing things meaning oh uh, for those of for people that are playwrights you know i would say like oh it doesn't have to be on a stage it could be in a garden it could be you know it could be literally on somebody's roof it could be on a phone like i think thinking about different kinds of spaces Mm -hmm. um, that can be considered stage spaces and also thinking rethinking the relationship with the audience, uh, which of course is central to what we do. So, so at the end of the day, it doesn't rely on a building. It's actually about what is the connection with the audience? Uh, and so I think that that's tremendously exciting and I hope it doesn't go away on the upper tier, which is higher operating budgets of places that have infrastructure and staff, et cetera. So that part of it, for the for the people that have not been laid off (laughs) um you know there actually has been oh how do we rethink things can we create a digital stage i mean i was just thinking about center theater group that has never had a digital stage before, and suddenly they're like digital stage is on their website. You know what I mean? And they've actually been doing stuff and they're like at the higher end in terms of budget size. Right. Right. Um, And so that's been like exciting because I think that for organizations that are what I call heavy, in the sense that there's a lot of weight to them in terms of like the amount of people on staff and, and so forth and maintaining a building. For those that have been have been able to rethink how to make things, I think that that points a to the future. And I would, you know, signal somebody like La Jolla Playhouse as well that you know mm-hmm. was able to do that really elegantly in a really exciting way, uh, both presenting work and producing uh, in the virtual realm. So I think that and keeping you know keeping the the contract with the audience alive, but also contract with artists right like sort of like literally like still talking to artists and not feeling like the door shut everything shut down and will never speak again. So I feel like that's that's what I call the positive. So the up the up of this is that's where I'm feeling. There's a lot of downs as well, but we're not there yeah. yet. So,
1: yeah, uh, and and Kareem, I you know, I you are more and more a playwright, right? But you've come to this more through direction and you've also been an important convener of, of people in the work. And um, so, so, yeah, your, your perspective too, what do you see in new play development that is exciting to you and working well?
0: What I found, you know, I've been, been just having, again, partially because of the sort of willingness now that people have a, a, a new willingness that people have to to talk more in this platform through face-to-face communication on on Zoom or other virtual platforms. It feels like my journey was to talk to every theater in America, sort of. Like I went on this very sort of concerted mission to say like, hey, look, we're all trying to figure out the way forward, right? You know, and here I am as an artist from a very underrepresented community in our industry. I'm a writer and I'm a director and I'm, you know, trying to advocate for my community. Like, let's all talk about this exact question. Like, what's working? It's not, what's not working? What can we do different? What can we do better? Because I think the, the, the to me, the most positive thing is that nobody is taking for granted the systems that have been in place and realizing that we have been working with these broken systems for a really, really long time. So we can't just go back into this idea that, okay, we're starting back up. I mean, just when we thought we were starting back up again, here we are in sort of another shutdown. But it does feel that the energy is one of change and one of reevaluation of what's come before so that I'm hearing a lot less of, well, we've always done it this way, right? Like nobody is allowed to use that excuse anymore in a way because it's the easiest thing to just say, well, nobody wants that. Nobody wants, we've always done it that way. That's what we've all been clamoring for. So when that's the starting point, what I feel is positive is that then the next question is, okay, well, what do we want to do? And what does that look like? And so in my, and I, I sort of come from this, as a much sort of newer playwright in the sense that, you know, I've only been sort of writing professionally for the last few years and none of my plays have like been fully professionally produced yet, but I've had a lot of developmental opportunities over the last few years. And, and many now, fortunately, knock on wood, that they continue are coming up over the next several months. And what I am finding is, is at least somewhat optically, but at least as the initial conversations, it's always like, what do you, actually really need so it's not starting from the conversation of this is what we have to offer you and this is the program and this is how we develop plays at this theater it's more like what do you actually need so as a for instance you know I was supposed to leave I was supposed to fly out tomorrow to do a workshop of of my new play Dodie and Diana at the Magic Theater in San Francisco and historically you know their new play development festival was called Virgin New Plays Festival and it was a festival and it worked in a very specific way and every play had this amount of rehearsal and all that kind of stuff and when they approached me about working with me they said we have decided that that festival as acclaimed as it is and how many great plays have come out of it we're just scrapping it we're starting fresh we we are starting with a new idea and every Mm -hmm. project that we're supporting is completely bespoke in terms of what you need the the way the work is shared is very specific and it was exciting because I got to say, okay, this is what I want to explore right now. How can you support that? And, and you know, that's not happening everywhere, but I'm seeing much more of a willingness to meet artists, particularly artists of color, at that level of where are you right now? What right. do you need? And I do think it's getting a little bit easier, or at least let's just say I can only speak personally, that I feel more empowered to say, this is what i absolutely this is like my non-negotiable for this right um and so that's that's where we're at and i do think that people are being a little bit more creative in how they think about how to support artists you know playwrights and directors more so playwrights still than directors and i hope we can make some space to talk about that but Mm -hmm. um because i still don't think our industry uh, Actually supports directors in the development of new plays. They support playwrights so far, but right. um, I do think there's a willingness to new ideas that didn't exist prior to all of
1: this. No, we've we've spoken in the past, and you you kind of coined a phrase for me of the the generative theater artist. That that yes, very often that is the playwright, but it isn't always the playwright. And how do we how do we wrap our arms around that that key creative group around a project? So, Kari Dodd, what what? I'm sure there are many, right? And we only have so much time together. But if you had to point to a couple of the glaring holes in your from your vantage point in the way new play development isn't succeeding at the moment, and it doesn't just have to be related to the pandemic, right? It can be we can think more before and after, of course. So, what what are some things that you wish were happening in new play development that are not?
3: Ah wish, wishes, wishes <laughs> are difficult, aren't they? Uh, I will say that I think that the wish is complex right now, but the wishes are complex because of the queue. So, so every like, literally, almost, nearly everyone I speak to, that's at least affiliated with a company. Oh, well, you know, our reading queue or our commission queue is now like five years behind and three years behind, you know. So, which I totally understand. Uh, I also see people, burdened and burnt out, and mm-hmm. and kind of feeling like that mountain cannot be. They can't climb that mountain. Do you know what I mean? Like, how will we ever get past the queue? Do you know what I mean? I feel like that's what I keep hearing, and I and I feel like my wish is you have there's the there's the beautiful part of this is one wishing to honor all those commitments that you've made to people, and how do you implement them. But the other part of that is that the world has changed radically. And, you know, you need to make space (laughs) to do new things and, and to and maybe talk to those artists. So if you want to go back to those same artists and talk to them about like, Does this play make sense now? Or this musical or whatever you're making or this devised piece, does this make sense now in the current world we're living in? How can we remake it? I think that that question becomes more vital rather than trying to replicate something that may have been five or seven years of development was slated for production, let's say in 2020 and it's now 2022 or we're going into 2023 seasons, right, and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, does that way of working still make sense? We're also in accelerated climate change, which we have been for a long time. So I think that I think that the industry as a whole needs to deal with that. And I feel like that's the there are these conversations that have been brewing around that, but I feel like true action needs to happen around that, and it's not just uh, means of production but it's actually li- literally how you make things, how it's distributed, who, who, you know, how are you reaching, how are you reaching, how are you contacting, how are you creating networks with audiences in a different way than the reliance on, um, building based, usually building based come to the venue, pay your ticket kind of uh, model. Because I think that model, in accelerated climate change is actually not going to work. And so we have to think of different, more nimble ways and more, maybe more um, kind of uh, underground ways of working that I think might be really exciting and fun. And and maybe recapture that idea of theater being like weirdly sexy, which I think that you know, like, ooh, like that cool thing that, you know, in the in-person the in, the, in the in-person world, that cool thing that happened in the basement that you want to go see can suddenly be the cool thing that's on Twitch that you want to go see, right? So I think that it's just like a different way of reconfiguring that conversation. But it's really also, you know, to echo, Kareem, to echo Kareem, the notion of one of the big things that has always happened in new play development is there's always, there hasn't always been, I'll retract that, but I will say, is that there's a tendency to be, well, you know, it starts with the read through and then you do the thing and then you do the next thing. And then there's a reading and I'm like, you know, and I've said for years, I'm like, why? Like, it doesn't have to work that way. In fact, I love starting with design, right? Like, so it's like, what would my first, you know, if somebody were to ask me, what's the first impulse for the script? And it's like, I'd love to bring some designers into the room and talk about the play, right? Mm-hmm. Like. And that's that time. Sometimes people are like, what? Oh, how do you do that? You know, I'm like totally possible. It just means that you have to you have to create if you're working within systems, you have to create systems that allow for that kind of flexibility and change to occur.
1: Yeah, I love all of that. And, you you know, you're you're singing a song. I love to hear because we are talking. We are we have coined for ourselves a phrase of a venue agnostic approach. Right. We. We have a very small office, which is basically me in a in a in a bare room, just to get away from my dog and my lovely, adorable children, who I who I love. But I need I need enough space to concentrate for a few hours at a time. But we're working with venues all around town. We are hopeful to you know help our industry move into these technological platforms as well. So, um, and I I love the idea. One thing kareem and i have spoken about is kind of creating creative pods around our artists and and not me as artistic director saying well this your creative pod is this this and this but it's saying well who do you want so if we were developing a work of yours and you said well the most important to me is to grasp a visual vocabulary well then we meet you with that creative pod so that's that's great yeah Uh, kareem what about you what um what uh, what what feel like the glaring holes to you in in the way we all um, are 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 moving things along?
0: Well, I'll, I'll try, I want to focus it on wishes like Karida did because uh, it feels like more like positive dreaming yeah. as opposed to like naming things. I mean, God, I was trying to I was reflecting on like I have so many wishes. Like, how would I possibly rank them? You know, I think <laughs> that I think that like maybe if I had to pick like two or three, I would say and not necessarily like in top order, but I do think it's about getting away from, and it it's it's it it goes with the kind of what you were talking about in terms of sort of decentering venues and decentering that. It's like, look, we're artists, right? Especially we're artists in theater, right? So what we need, I think, I mean, I, I so I'm completely a freelancer, right? Like I've given up any other, like so I need to be supported as an artist, literally, right? So I think that over time, if, if, and this is hard, right? Because I think in America, at least in my person, so I'm from Canada and I've like seen different models back in my home country, I've seen different models in Europe that I found really interesting. And here in America, there's still this sort of like, I mean, it's pure American capitalism, but there's this idea of like a hit. There's this idea of like a product and a hit and it's, and a play and a playwright can be this like successful thing, right? But it's almost centered, it's almost always centered around a project, right? And I don't believe that that an artist is defined by one project, especially when it's that hit project, right? What an artist needs, and I say artist because that it can be a director, that can be a playwright, that can be a designer, that can be an actor, needs to develop their work over a period of time and space, and like develop a breadth of a body of work, some of which is could potentially be a hit, and some of which could be garbage, however you choose to like, <laughs> adjudicate that, right? But what you see often, and this is this is changing more slowly than the other stuff that is changing for the better, is that I think for all of the reasons that we know about you know, subscribers and keeping butts in seats and selling tickets, theaters want freaking hit shows, right? What they don't necessarily want to say to an artist is, write what you're the most passionate about right now and it can fail or we're going to program this play and we're going to make a commitment to program your next two plays or we're going to to you know give you some financial support or space support for five to ten years you know like that just so rarely happens in our field so there is this it continues that that we're, we're all working us freelance artists, particularly artists of color with the scarcity model that we're all fighting for the same small opportunities. And then one or two or a handful of people will achieve this sort of like success and they'll have a hit, and everything will happen. And that's just not the way art should work, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yes, it's very pie in the sky to say like, destroy capitalist systems, but what I'm craving is For the people who support work, and that can be a theater institution, like a theater that has a building, it can be a developmental institution, it can be other organizations that support artists, but to say like, we are investing in the longevity of an artist's career, or a a period of that artist's career, say like, we're supporting this artist for five years. And during that five years, they can do whatever they want to do. And maybe it's not even producing anything. Maybe it's just developing work. So with a handful of exceptions, that just doesn't happen a lot in our field. So my wish would be for, for the organizations, particularly for producing organizations, to start to think about their relationships with artists more in the long term and more in the long haul and not around you know okay you've made this thing that I like and I want to have this thing that you made that I like you know uh (laughs) which is essentially what it amounts to so I mean that would be kind of like wish number one and then I guess wish number two I mean I could keep on going for like four hours but I said like mission number two in terms of like particularly in terms of new play development which we touched on Nathaniel is like to start to see how the generation of new plays and processes can come can be decentered from the playwright. And I say this with all the love in the world to playwrights and I am a playwright and I and I'm benefiting from those structures right now. But it does I think shut out so many generative artists in this country, particularly directors who who develop and direct new work and and you know when you name when you name artists who have managed to sort of achieve success in our in our theater industry, you know the the directors who achieve success seem to only be able to measure it around commercial success. So, you know, Broadway and sort of commercial success. And and I think that once we start to break down that model and say like, what is it actually like to develop the career of a generative director in sort of regional theater, for instance, everything could change, but it just is so rare. So, you know, us in the directing community, particularly again, directors of community, I've been talking for years, it's like, why are no theaters, almost no theaters commissioning directors to create original work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or even developing developmental structures where the director is not just a gig artist that is hired in to usher up a reading or a workshop of a playwright's play, but is deeply involved in the creation of that work. So that's, you know, I've been banging the drum of that for a long time and starting to like make certain organizations understand just how it's actually created a whole generation of directors who don't know how to generate because all they've been told to do is serve up a product. Um, And that's ultimately decentering them as artists, right? That is not allowing them to be true artists in their own right. Um, And so that's my other big wish, at least, you know, right now on friday january 14th Um, exactly ask me tomorrow and i'll have five more
1: you know one of the things that uh happened just before the new year i guess or maybe a, a little bit prior to that i feel like i'm in a strange time warp all the time with um with the pandemic so i never quite know what date it is or where i am uh but it was the closing of the lark uh, the new Play Development Center in New York City that kind of shocked me. And I, I moved to New York in 2001. And so I realized when I read their closing statement that it's it's a 27-year-old organization, which, you know, in my mind, it was a 60- or 70-year-old organization. And I know it was... so, But it, it just really took me by surprise. And maybe it shouldn't have because of the pandemic and the financial challenges that so many people were seeing through the pandemic. But... um but, Kareem, maybe I would start with you, because I know you were the... Um, you you founded, I believe, and, and, and co-led, if I'm not mistaken, the Middle Eastern American Writers' Lab at the Lark. And, um, you know, you, so you had a, a, a fairly intimate and recent experience um, with the Lark. And I don't know, I guess the question is, like, does that signal something... Does that signal something in new play development? Or are we just talking about the fragility of, of, of a nonprofit business model?
0: I mean, it's a very, that's a very complex question. I mean, and it, and it, and it is, I think something we're going to be grappling with for a while because I I don't think there is, it's not an either or answer. I think it's a, it's a series of things. I, 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 want to think that it is not a signal of sort of a greater sort of crack in you know how we develop new plays, but I will name the obvious that it's a massive, like, like a, just such a massive, almost like incomprehensible loss to to our our field as a whole. I mean, you know, there's nothing like the. I mean, and I and I say this no disparagement to all so many wonderful organizations around the country and in New York as well, but I think the Lark and and having been so supported there for for many years. And leading a program there, there is nothing like it, and their approach to to how they supported artists was really incomparable. And so, I think we're still figuring out how to kind of move move forward from that. And and you know, I I, I feel a little tricky talking about it because I I have some inner insights into the workings of it, but I think there was some very complicated, you know, issues in terms of. A, a board and an organization sort of not necessarily connecting in terms of value systems, right? And and mm. and and I think, you know, as an artist, I'm still learning. <laughs> because we often don't get exposed to this just how intricately interwoven that board and and staff relationship is and how all of that interaction sort of leads to so many of the choices that are made and i do under, i do i do get the sense that both in the the, the handing over of the baton to the new artistic leadership team and the pandemic and certain issues with the board, as it was sort of described in the outreach that came to the Lark artists, that it was sort of a quote-unquote perfect storm of events that led to this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But still, I think what we we might want to sort of imagine is like knowing that 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 amazing institution doesn't exist anymore. It does leave a huge hole in the support system for some very specific programs that supported, like, for instance, you know, the Middle Eastern American Writers Lab. I mean, this is a very sort of specific community of writers that needs a very kind of bespoke support the LARC was able to provide. And it's been an interesting journey because with the Larks support and they've been continuing to support us even in this this moment of sort of transition and shutting down, they've been trying to re- they they use the term rehome to rehome us in another organization, but the organizations that we're in conversations with are all producing organizations. So it's, a, again, an interesting being caught in between that idea that, you know, an ideal home is one that is in certain ways devoid of the pressure of being with housed within a, a producing organization. Right. But yet th- those producing organizations have a stability and often they have buildings and they have financial support that a place like the, the Lark might not have had. So, I think we're going to be dealing for several years, at least for m- many of us New York based artists that called the Lark a home with how we move forward out of that. When what I hope will happen, which, I, which I'm optimistic will, is that people will start to say that, you know, many many people will have to rise up and say like, how do we fill that gap? And how do we start to imagine new forms of support for these communities that need it so badly?
1: Mm-hmm. and. Caridad, did you have uh, direct experience with the Lark, and and what is what is your vantage point on on that departure from our ecosystem?
3: Uh, yeah, I've been affiliated with the Lark for twenty three years, so I uh, <laughs> saw you know when they were like in that tiny space to then getting the new space, all of the journalistic journey with them uh, on various levels. I was on the advisory board of the U.S. Mexico change. I also translated a place for them, uh, and published work, um, did any number of roundtables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like, you know, I you know, the loss is, is kind of I'm still can't you know, when I got that email I, I kind of I still can't believe it landed in my inbox. You know, I I'm like, no, that can't be true. Like I was just like dismissing it for a few days and then it was like the wave of sadness and tears and everybody mm. sort of reacting to that. And I was just like, How you know, my God, like first of all, not just for New York artists, but for international artists, because they had so many international programs, it was such a beacon in New York. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the few possible beacons that sort of A like believed in work in and translation and the idea of exchange in that way, like cultural exchange and, you know, which, you know, outside of like really tiny, super specific orgs and the city just doesn't exist, let alone in the rest of the country where work and translation barely registers, right? So I feel like just just on one arm, like one arm of the lark uh, on the international field, is now kind of decimated. And of course, you you get the sort of responses from so many artists around the world saying, oh, my God, like, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Like, who's going to mm. step up to the plate? And and the work was, you know, also there was like a range of experience. So I think that one of the one of the compelling things about the Lark and hopefully maybe one of the lessons that can be moved forward if somebody's willing to. Maybe it's going to take like ten people, ten different organizations to kind right. of splinter off. Right. Uh, but one of them was the fact that the LARC there was a kind of um there's a kind of like you could just walk in the door with a script, you know, which which I th- you can't do anywhere else. Right? Mm. Like this notion of, hey, I want a round table. I'm a playwright, uh, or I'm a student playwright, or I'm just graduating from MFA. You know, like there was a kind of like there were some systems built into it, uh, the way the organization was sort of, you know, conceived. Um, that allowed for that to happen, and you know, and then it was like you could be at that table and then sitting next to somebody who had like written twenty plays, right? You know, so this kind yeah. of like that conversation, which is kind of like what I call like unofficial mentorship, was happening all the time at the Lark.
1: Yeah, and um, you you talked about New York, and you talk about the real estate challenge. Um, are you feeling? I guess maybe that this is in relation to the technology, also the conversation we've had about technology. But is there, does there need to be a further decentralization of our industry? Um, does it? Do we need to, do we need to think about the American theater beyond Broadway and Off Broadway a little more than we we currently do, Caridad? Dodd? Um, and as you said, maybe these programs or these or something like the Lark would better exist outside of the economic pressures of one or two or three of the most expensive cities in in the world, right? Um, so, um, are you thinking along those lines that we 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 could benefit from a further decentralization of of the work?
3: No, uh, I've always I've always thought that it's kind of silliness to think about New York to think about New York, Chicago possibly lay on occasion as being the only places where theater exists you know what i mean i, I in, the, in the united states i think that's just bonkers uh there's a very vibrant uh, you know theater makers builders all over the u.s you know and uh and i think that sometimes people that have don't get credit or don't get seen quote unquote or don't get reviewed or whatever you know what i mean we just lost the amazing terry teach out Mm-hmm. Uh, the critic from the Wall Street Journal and right. you know just big up to Terry, who was one of the last and few that actually reviewed things outside of the big city centers and sought work out and like made space for it in his column at The Wall Street Journal and championed work. That's very rare, and I think that but I do think that that's the answer, mm-hmm. you know, thinking nationally at least for the moment uh in terms of how do we how do we take care of the national ecosystem? And and also because I think that, you know, some of this has to do with um, artists feeling left out, for example, feeling like, you know, for example, Oh, I'm making work in Houston, nobody's seeing what I'm doing, and everybody's talking about what happens in New York and my work is not quote valuable. So I think this notion of value, which gets attributed to only work that's happening in the city centers, the acknowledged city centers of theater, um, is uh is wrong. And I think that one of the one of the one of the kind of amazing things that's happened over the pandemic, because suddenly it was like who's pivoting where or when, it's like suddenly, you know, people like you know, a theater in Arizona or a theater in Houston or a theater in Seattle is suddenly like taking the charge, right? Mm -hmm. They're leading. And people are like, oh, wait, what? What?" And I was like, yeah, totally. Right. So I think that, you know, power and real estate uh, matters a lot in our business, the industry part of it. Uh, And that's I don't think that's ever going to go away just because of the nature of how uh, the US has set up economically uh, and unless you dismantle everything it's just not going to happen but I do think that the conversation around I hope this doesn't go away the conversation around that there's that there is extraordinary work and good work happening all over the country of all different sizes and shapes and ranges of experience needs to be acknowledged and I think that that's where the focus should be and also that, you don't know where the leaders are, right do you know I think that sometimes people are like the leaders are only in those city centers, and it's like, no, nope. you know what the leader could be like in a small theater in Dallas, right? Yeah. They yeah. can actually have the vision, right, so I think it's like listen keep your ears to ground and really listen,
1: yeah, you talked about um when moving away from the the city centers and just on a on a personal note, my my father was a modern dancer. We both danced for Paul Taylor. Um, and then we both had very brief stints with Paul Taylor and then he formed the Cliff Keiter Dance Company in New York and then he moved to the Bay Area in California in 79, um, around the time I was born. You know, he and, he and my mom now had two children and um, wanted to get out of New York and he had an incredible company called the New Dance Company. And I now have the new theater, uh, in part to honor my father, who passed last year. Um, but he lamented that a lot in, in, in his life, that actually his most productive and best company, uh, working alongside the San Jose Symphony Orchestra for almost all of their performances, his most vibrant artistic work happened after he left New York. And um, that was a different time, obviously. We're talking about the 70s and 80s, that we didn't have social media. It wasn't quite so easy to connect across distance as it is now. Um, but he just felt like from you know, that the dance world, at least the, the critical world, um, had no idea. And, and, and that it, he felt like he didn't exist anymore once he moved to the opposite coast. And we're talking about the Bay Area, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not a place without out resources. Um, you know, you uh, Kareem, you've you've talked a little bit about on this call um, uh, being an artist of color, a director of color, a writer of color, and that some of those conversations um, feel maybe a little bit easier now, or um, you feel empowered, perhaps, um, to to um, to hold your ground, perhaps in, in certain conversations, but I I wanted to I wanted to sh- ask both of you if you think post twenty twenty the reemergence of Black Lives Matter following the murder of George Floyd uh, and all of the American theaters, of course, taking to social media and their websites and making their comments and their statements and commitments. Um, it's still fresh, right? This is not. This isn't. We don't have years of data to sort of see if the work is happening, but maybe Kareem, starting with you, do you feel like the work um, that people committed themselves to uh, a year ago is starting to happen?
0: It's always so hard to 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 define it from the outside because there's that there's this there's the optical things there's the the things that can be shared through you know conversations around work and then there's actually doing the darn work right so it's it's you know there's a whole gradation of that i mean this is where i, I and i and i i try to always to like be an optimist or at least a, a realist you know i try not to, to be a pessimist and i certainly what i want to go into Uh, any potential collaboration or any time I'm talking to um, an organization that wants to support my work, either as a writer or as a director, is I want to make good faith assumptions, right? Like that is my starting point. It's like, let me try to assume that you're not, yeah. And so, however, you know, my lived experience thus far is that there is still a lot of people are still operating out of a place of fear. That's part one. Um, I think a lot of people have not actually had the opportunity to really understand what our field is in a post-pandemic world, because we're still in the pandemic. And so the the fact that we started to have this reckoning while we were also grappling with the pandemic has made it so that there is, so I'll give you a for instance, because I think it's helpful, right? Like there there has been this sort of more recent interest in some of my work and and i'm not gonna lie part of it i attribute to the fact that you know the work the quality of the work aside because i always think that the quality of the work is actually sometimes a small part of the reason work gets produced but like the willingness people have had to engage with me and my work has certainly gone up because i they need to know more artists from the Middle Eastern community because they need to by diversifying their programming and the artists they work with, okay? So on that level, I can engage with people who might not have been willing to engage with me more. But the question that I am always posing to them when they are saying, okay, I wanna engage with you and your work. And I'm saying, why? And I'm saying, what are the value systems behind your decision to want to engage with the work of any artists of color? Because to me, it's always a values-based conversation, right? And I think so far what we've seen is that theaters are not yet, most theaters are not yet in the place where they can be doing the sort of deep, deep values-based work that they need to do in order to address this history of inequity, right? And the reason being, and it's not like I'm letting them off the hook, but they're not, they don't know what they're doing. There's like, we're barely programming and everything is falling, still falling apart around us. Right. So I, I am, so what I am doing right now is choosing to give them to a certain, and I don't want to say this like blithely. And I don't want to say this, like I'm being dismissive, but I am trying to give people the benefit of the doubt that it is that, that this to me is a long journey. Right. And I think that and I maybe I'm a little bit outside of the norm because I do feel like there was this this period where the the demands felt very immediate. And I'm not to say that certain immediate change can't be made and has started to be made. I mean, a lot of places have eliminated 10 out of twelves. like there have been all sorts of small incremental changes that I think are really good progress. But I think the question you're asking about is. In terms of BIPOC representation and representations of other underrepresented communities, that takes a, a, the type of values based, board based, staff based conversations that take time and take a whole reimagining of what the systems are, largely the financial systems. Because I always say the values of an organization essentially are embedded in the budgets right so you know there is this whole thing about how do we do we have enough time and space and reflection to be able to do that. And at first, the pandemic seemed almost like a gift because theaters were saying like, suddenly I'm not producing anymore so I have time to do this sort of value-based, you know, re-examination. But then we got into this model of like, okay, now we need to start producing digital theater. And now we need to start producing again. And oh, now we're shutting down again. And now we're tracking how many Omicron outbreaks. So so again, I, I think that the deeper, longer work is to come, and I do fear, so the pessimistic part of me is now revealing itself. I still, I still do fear that there is a lot of box ticking um, and that yeah. that is the only level that we've gotten to with certain organizations yet. Um, and that, not to say that they can't get there, but that's going to be a long process, you know? Yeah. And so what I try to do is like, I try to both encourage the conversation, challenge them, but also try to understand that like, And give myself the permission to say, no, thank you. Like that has been the most Mm -hmm. empowering part for me is I am no longer trying to operate at a scarcity model. So like when I talk to younger artists, particularly artists of color who say, well, you know, how do I get to where you're getting? And I'm like, I'm barely anywhere, but whatever, I'm getting somewhere. But I say to them, you know, is remember that you are valuable, right? Like you are the valuable one. They're, they're supporting artists. So, you know, if they don't have artists to support, then they don't have an institution, right? And I can say no, I, and I have. I've actually, this is in the past, I've said no to more things than I ever have before, because I know that they are not meeting me at the level of what I need to succeed as an artist of color in this field. And so I'm not taking that for granted and saying like, okay, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm just gonna take it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at, but I, I do think that there's a long, long road ahead of us. And, um, and every organization's in a very different place and every person is in a very different place. This isn't just organizational, this is like human work that we're all doing to go like, well, what are my biases? And what do I need to dismantle within myself so that I can be a, an artist or supporting an artist, which is ultimately about reflecting humanity, right? So yeah. this is deep work. Yeah.
1: and I'm glad you pointed to the systems. Our our last podcast, um, Michael J. Bobbitt was one of our guests, and he he wrote some wonderful things during the pandemic about boards and the the structures of season selection and subscriber benefits and all of the economic models that lead us to you know the the, the habits, the annual habits um, that that um, have. Have excluded many from full participation and allowing the American theater to be the reflecting the reflecting pool that it can be for the entirety of the American experience um, what what about you Caridad what are you what are you seeing or feeling on on this line on this topic?
3: I'm seeing that there have been many uh, if we're talking about either building-based or somewhat building-based institutions, organizations that have spent their entire lives devoted to artists of color uh, mm-hmm. that that I think need to be championed and, and actually supported fiscally much more um, rather than depending on uh, PWIs to kind of uh, take the please listen, the sort of please listen to us uh, mentality, uh, I think is backward. Uh, And I think that, you know, I think it can lead to a devaluing of a lot of the organizations and people that have actually been doing the work, you know. Uh, And what I'm seeing is that a lot of those organizations, no surprise, a lot of them don't have the big budgets and don't have the access to the funds and you you know and so again they're being cut out of the conversation when they've actually been doing the work, you know, so so I just say lift them up. You know, lift those organizations up that actually have been there for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 10, 15, devoted completely on their mission and their work with artists to supporting artists of color. Because they need to thrive. And in fact, we need to point to, I was having this conversation with a, a smaller operating budget kind of theater, you know, that was saying, you know, artists of color led, uh, that's what they produce, a Latinx theater. You know, it's like, they thought, I. they said to me, I don't think I'll ever be in a room where I'm next to that other theater that has like, a 5 million dollar operating budget. I can barely hit 1 million. Do you know what I mean and it's like that's wrong. You know, if if yeah. we are if we are in capitalism, which we are, do you know what I mean? Then then actually this is a huge problem because the power is always going to be held by those that have the huge resources or access to funders that only see them and don't see anybody else, right? And so, so I just think that that's where the focus needs to go. Uh, and, you know, it's encouraging to see, for example, Ma Yi. I'm just going to like shout out to Ma Yi, who I just think Ralph Pena and company are like brilliant at what they do, um, who set up my studios during the pandemic. Yo, like when everybody was like, what do we do? And they're like, we're setting up my studios. We're going to support our artists. We're going to keep making work, you know, and are like co-producing with the public and the McCarter and like, right, you know, they're, you know, and I know they're actually putting in like most of the legwork on that. Right. You know, so but they're supporting their artists. Right. And they're making things happen. So I think that that's I think that's where the conversation needs to be rerouted and Mm -hmm. less around, uh, please, PWIs, give me thanks. As big and shiny
0: and beautiful as those things may be.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's really key, right? I mean, it's it's like the conversation still focuses on the historically white institutions, the problems with historically white institutions, as opposed to saying Hey, look across the street. There's really remarkable work happening, um, and it has been happening for for generations now. Um, so I, I i love that. I love that idea of refocusing in that way. Um, I i have I have you both for a couple more minutes, and I've, I've been so generous of of both of you to spend this much time with us. Um, if there was a world, and I I you may have already pointed to this, but uh, just starting with you, as, as, we, as we think about this transmedia approach, which is what we're calling at the New Theater, I'm sure other people are thinking using other words, but as we think about supporting our artists and um, the work that, that the wonderful work you all make um, through this multi platform distribution and development and promotion and using all of the tools that we could use to to um, bring awareness uh, to the work what are there any are there any things in your mind Karidad, that are concerns or reservations or anything about that that sort of takes away from theater as we've known it at least in this in this last chapter of history? Or, or, or are you feeling all gung-ho, let's just push forward in these new directions?
3: I don't know, like theater as we know it. Uh, theater as hmm. we know it, you know, transmedia work has been around since the late 90s. So yeah. so it's been around for a while, you know? So I, I just think that, uh, you know, It has to do with the work you're making, right? Like for me, it's like, go back to like, what's the impetus for the work and what is the intention behind it? Um, And if it's it's like, if the artists are like, I think it's only for an in-person experience, that's gonna change the choices you make about what the kind of thing you're making is. But if you're like, this could be modular, then you make different choices around the work, mm. you know, and I think that flexibility is like super important and, and should always be there um, rather than oh, it's, not an only... either or, right? it's not an either or. Right. I think it's like also, you know, electricity happened like many years ago. So you know <laughs> what I mean? So it's like, please stop with this like ridiculous. You know, I'm not pointing at you, Nathan, but I'm sort of feel like that there's a kind of conversation in the field. Sometimes it gets stuck in the groove of like, Oh my God, but transmedia, but it's not sacred. And it's like, dude, like, I don't know. As soon as you put a light bulb in, like, maybe it stopped being sacred because the candles weren't along there, you know, and everybody adjusted. And one day people adjusted to telephones. And one day people adjusted to projections on stage. And you know what I mean? So it's just like, it's just uh, the form is evolving and it's Mm -hmm. changing. That's what makes it a living form. Um, What's going to happen with it after? Who knows? Who knows if you know, there was some there was a student who was like telling me, Oh, should I call it a, a play or a film or what is it? And it's like, Maybe we'll come up with a new word and that's fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a I'm a sports fan as well and I imagine any time a sport went on to radio or went on to television that somebody said, no, we can't put this on the radio. No one will come to the stadium. No, we can't put this on TV. No one will come to the stadium. This will kill the real thing. And I think we've seen whether we're talking about sport or whether we're talking about music or any other thing, it is so obviously proven over time that this evolution that you're talking about, that is always ongoing, only adds audience and affection and interest over time um kareem I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with you the 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 benefits and drawbacks of this um as karidad said ever evolving but what feels like to some new transmedia approach to theater making
0: <laughs> oh i don't know i'm in a different place i mean I i, I have not. To me, the the I mean, I, I, I maybe sounding I'm going to come out sounding like this old purist, right? And, mm-hmm. and I, I, there's this thing about the, the exchange because to me, as as a as an artist who creates, I'm always thinking about audience and what that dynamic experience with an audience is, right? So you know, I've had this very interesting experience lately where I've started to create work for television not actually literally like making tv shows but i'm writing tv pilots right and the the imaginative way my brain works to sort of find my way into that world is a completely different i mean it's drawing from the same skill sets right but it's a different product that i am creating and and knowing that i am engaging with an audience in a very different way than i would if i'm creating a piece of theater right and so You know, I've had these interesting experiences now where two plays that I have directed for the stage have been then sort of streamed for an audience, right? And in both cases, I had this sort of schism in my brain because the, the part of my brain that I was like, well, this is amazing. And I'm getting to share this work with people who can't be in the physical space with us. And that is a net good. It's like, okay, I'm sharing this work for them, right? And so that is good. And I did get to share that work with people all over the country and all over the world and include people in that experience. But ultimately, these were pieces I was directing. I was making the work for the people who were there in the physical space with me because that's what I know how to do, right? So that, that idea that, I mean, the hybridity of it and all of that stuff, I'm like, yes, absolutely yes, right? But I, I myself, believe it is a whole new form, and I'm still asking the question of what that audience experience is, you know, because um, that's what I'm trying to craft, ultimately. Like, I actually don't, like, to me, the theatrical experience in, in no way is literary, and also even the directing experience is in no way, is it's all about the audience, right? And so, I know what it's like to sit in a theater seat as a director and experience a play with my audience and understand what that go-between is, right? But when Mm. you start to sort of understand, like, okay, this audience is everywhere, it's all of these different places, and it's live, okay, it's exciting and it's new, but I'm still not there yet in terms of, like, the... Not to say that I won't do it, right, but that's the question that I'm asking myself as a creator, you know, and and then how do we start to define how to support artists who want to do that exploration, right, you know, and that to me is an exciting possibility. and I, and I, and I love your analogy in terms of like, okay, well we take sports and suddenly it's on the radio and then it's on television and like soon it's going to be like, you know, virtual reality and it's all going to be great, you know? So I'm, I, I'm all like thumbs up on all of the new stuff, but I, I'm, I'm still just trying to figure out what I'm doing right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, like, I still just want to make plays. Um, and then hopefully I'll make a TV show and then maybe I'll make a movie and then maybe I'll make a. know it's like I'm also writing a podcast like a a fictional podcast and that's a whole other ball of wax right I'm like well how am I telling the story in an all audio experience and I love that what I do love about all of this is that I do feel that theater artists are at the the vanguard of this you know like Mm -hmm. we are I you know that's why there was such an excitement to bring playwrights into the television space a decade ago plus, and now it's all over, you know, and every playwright is getting a TV gig. And I'm like, yes, all for it, because I think that we have always been interested in how to use collaboration to unlock storytelling, you know? So it's not a surprise to me that we're seeing playwrights branching into podcast and now playwrights, you know, playwrights and theater creators branching out into these sort of transmedia experiences. So to me, the sky is the limit, Um, but each of us, I think, has to understand like where our own relationship is to those types of new forms
1: right right and maybe it's maybe it's developing the craft of translation right like as you said the live in-person experience is one very um specific dynamic exchange between artist and audience and as we think about these things you can't necessarily just film that and stream that and call it a day right it's how do we translate all of these things to this all of these various platforms well listen i am i am so incredibly grateful to both of you for taking this time um all of these conversations are are things that we take back to the office so to speak the little office i referred to at the top of this conversation and, and we keep rattling them around and and they are a valuable part of shaping who we want to be and the way we're going to advance our work. And I think an incredibly valuable thing, specific to the Richmond theater audience, but also the new theater audience, as hopefully we can grow beyond that market as well. But just just building that relationship with all of the things that we're thinking about as we as we push forward. So just so grateful for your insights today and um, and, and all of the time you just you just gave us. So. Um, with gratitude, I think I will wrap up and call it a day. That was Kari Switch and Kareem Fahmy, two remarkable theater artists uh, that we had a great pleasure of spending the last hour with. So, so thank you both.
3: This episode of TNT Art Forum was recorded at Common
0: House RVA. The Art Forum is produced by Hannah Sakora and Kaylin Williams and edited by Kaylin Williams. Our theme music is by Julian Evans. Thank you.
1: See you later.